Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. And welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Ellen. And uh, before we start our interview, I'd just like to encourage people to subscribe to our YouTube channel and share it with others who you think may be interested. And also, if you want to spread the word about our show, Cannabis Health Radio, write a review on the media platform you listen to and share our podcasts on social media. You never know. You just might save a life. Now, cancer is the leading cause of death worldwide, taking 10 million lives each year. And for women, ovarian cancer is ranked as the fifth most problematic cancer. Surgery and chemotherapy are generally used to treat ovarian cancer. Now, joining us from Colorado to tell her story about ovarian cancer and the role cannabis has played in her treatment is Michelle Kendall. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story. Now, Michelle, how were you feeling prior to your diagnosis? That's the especially terrible thing about ovarian cancer is that the symptoms are very mild generally and vague. I was misdiagnosed for almost six months with symptoms that did get gradually worse. But in general, I had no idea that anything this serious was wrong with me. I was in my early 40s. Um, So initially, the very first symptom that I had that was really odd and that's common with ovarian cancer is to feel full quickly. Hmm. And I did feel that a little bit. Um, I had some swings in my bowels from one extreme to another for a while, but then they would sort of clear up. Um, So it wasn't until um, for a good, you know, four or five months that I finally felt a mass in my abdomen and then things we got closer to a diagnosis more quickly, but um, ovarian cancer does have symptoms. They call it the silent killer, and there are symptoms, but they're they're very mild, and it's easy to confuse them with just um, yeah, yeah, GI issues. Um, so it, yeah. it's 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 yeah. Now I assume that you were a pretty healthy person up to then. I was. I had never had any major anything before. Uh, My husband and I are very active and fit, and um, ovarian cancer doesn't really have direct causes that are known yet. I mean, clearly there are genetic um, and mutation issues going on, but obesity and smoking are not really tightly correlated with ovarian cancer, and I don't, you know, those don't apply to me. So it's it's a very it's a it's a nasty cancer. It's a nasty cancer, and once it's recurred. Um, it's terminal. You know, the chemo will extend life, but there are no cures. So most women die of ovarian cancer after about five years of, of pretty awful treatments. Tell us about the day and what went through your mind the day the doctor told you that you had cancer. Yeah, I knew something was wrong with me and I was getting more desperate and worried, but I still didn't believe it. Um, when I woke up from surgery, uh, I had 54 staples stem to stern from my pelvis or my pelvic floor all the way up to my sternum. And I, I was, I just felt like I'd been kidnapped out of my life and my body. It, it was very shocking. And 
I when I read the statistics that it was most likely going to be a terminal diagnosis, um, it was really sobering, absolutely devastating to have that diagnosis in your early 40s and to have done everything right in life mm-hmm. and to be healthy and to have no warning and especially to have gone to the doctor and said, I don't feel right and be misdiagnosed. It's the tragedy that so many women with ovarian cancer that you know, share that very same story. What was the surgery you had? Um, so basically, uh, all of my female parts came out, uh, my, um, cervix, my uterus, both ovaries, both fallopian tubes, which is typical, but then also the peritoneal lining, which is the lining of the abdomen. So they peel all that off to try to capture any last cells. Mm. Um, so I was staged during surgery at three C which is typical. That's where I think maybe 80, 70% of most ovarian cancer patients are finally diagnosed. And by that time, it's spread throughout the abdomen. And that's when the survival really goes down. So they take all that lining to try to capture any stray cells. And then I also had a small piece of my diaphragm um, resected. And so um, there's a little, a little gully on the side of the abdomen deep inside called Morrison's pouch. And I guess that um, in advanced C3 cases, that's where the cancer likes to grow. It just tends to sort of do that. And so they took a piece of my diaphragm out. So, um, yeah, that was that. And then my second surgery, they took out my gallbladder. And thank goodness they left my pancreas. But the tumor was wrapped around all up there. And they took out lymph nodes around my aorta. So part of it had metastasized up. And then part of it had metastasized down to the lymph nodes in my lower groin. Wow, so it's safe to say this was pretty extensive. Yeah, I was in hospital for 10 days. My husband is a professor. We happened to be in Oxford at the time. So I was in the UK and um, had my surgery there. All of this just happened while we happened to be on sabbatical. So I was in hospital 10 days, and then I had a you know, few weeks rest, and then I started the chemo couplet that's typical for ovarian and most of the cancers that they don't have good treatments for is the standard Taxol and Carboplatin, um, and I had six cycles of that. So I had a very typical normal treatment for the first two recurrences of my cancer. What prognosis did the doctors give you when uh, the surgery was over? Some women can have that type of surgery and they won't have a recurrence, but it's not very many. So 3C is just right on the edge of it's, it's metastatic and we can't really get it all. So they told me if I made it more than a year and I didn't have a recurrence that maybe I would make it. But most women recur within a year or about 14 months and then you can continue to have treatments, but it just keeps coming back. The cancer stem cells are not killed by the chemo and so... I knew that it was, yeah, it was likely a terminal diagnosis. The oncologist didn't want to tell me that, but that's the reality of it. Emotionally, I can't imagine. I mean, Corey's gone through it. You've gone through it. A number of people we've talked to, but just to be told that your time is limited in not only years, but uh, two months, uh, that must be really damaging psychologically. Yeah, it is. I haven't actually been told I only have months to live yet. Um, But I think if I asked my oncologist today, she would probably say I have about a year. But it is, and I do feel like it's made me a little crazy, Um, especially given the situation of saying, 
this plant, this illegal compound is helping me. And it, um, it, I think, I think it takes a really strong person to get through this when the medical community is, and the world is all saying, you know, that you're a little bit nuts. And um, yeah, it has been very hard. It has been very hard. Mm-hmm. Now, how many chemo sessions did you undergo? <clears throat> so I have, I'm on my third recurrence. I didn't discover cannabis until my second recurrence. So I've had three complete series of six chemo couplets. So 18 cycles of chemotherapy. Most of those, um, well, those have all been carboplatin. 12 of those were Taxol. And I'm coming up on my lifetime limit of Taxol. So the last chemo cycle, I switched to Doxorubicin. And I think I could probably handle more chemo. Um, many women are going through four and five sort of series of chemo because typically ovarian cancer responds very well to chemo, but it just will, you know, continue to come back. So, so far I've had 18 chemos and probably about, about that same many Avastin, which isn't a chemotherapy. It's an immunotherapy that limits a specific protein that the body needs to make new blood vessels. So it starves the tumor of blood supply. It just slows growth down a bit. You know, I watched your video, which was excellent, the video of your story, and uh, you gave, uh, you were talking in your car about going to your next chemotherapy mm-hmm. treatment, and you were really struggling. Um, you were almost in tears, and you just didn't want to do it. Uh, does that happen often to you? The first series of chemo I had in, in the UK, I I felt okay. I mean, I didn't feel great, but it wasn't, I didn't complain and I, I, I felt like this is manageable. And I thought, oh, all these people complaining about chemo, it's not so bad. But of course, I was re- you know, really young. The second series was harder. And then when I switched to doxorubicin, it was much harder. I was having uncontrolled nausea and having to go back three days after my infusion to get liquids because I was having trouble keeping anything down. And that was even with a lot of you know extra anti-nausea meds. So I definitely feel it got harder during the treatment. And also now I've had so much Taxol, I can really feel the damage of the nerves in my feet. My toes are numb my feet ache and sort of everything below my knee feels sort of slightly deadened. So it's only since that last, the last few cycles that I really felt like, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. And um, it's easy to say that, but of course, if push came to shove and I had to, I probably would do more, but it's, it's definitely much harder on the body than the cannabis is for sure. Tell us how cannabis uh, entered into your treatment protocol. Yeah, let's talk about cannabis, my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) So I had been through two recurrences, and I knew that I was terminal, and um, I knew I had more time, but I just became much more open to things. And I realized that if I just let my doctor drive this process, that I'll be dead in a few years, not because I don't trust her or because she isn't trying, but the, the toolkit, there's only so many things. And I thought I have to take charge of this. And I kept hearing about cannabis and I watched, um, eventually found your website. And I thought this, this just can't be true. I, how can these two, you know, crazy folks up in Canada and all these other little websites that I was finding, how can this be true that, 
that there's something that will work that the doctor isn't telling me about. And as someone who comes from a family of physicians and is very sort of mainstream and not a um, conspiracy theorist, I just had such a hard time understanding how this was possible. Um, but then, of course, when you learn about the history of cannabis and, and then, of course, the endocannabinoid system, the fact that we're here, um, it all makes sense. But it's just such an odd path to find um, a plant medicine that might help that's, that's you know, been forbidden. So I, I started reading and I thought this seems real. And being a sciencey kind of person, I just got myself into PubMed and started reading. And I could not believe what I was reading. The preclinical data... Um, has been piling up, and um, I just was amazed. So I'd send papers to my dad, who's a urologist, and of course, at first he thought I was, you know, being desperate, which of course I am. But you know, the science is there; it's not fully figured out by any means. But I started taking it, and it was as simple as that. I started with um, chocolates that the neighbor made for me. He's a retired general practitioner. And his retirement project, he's been quite interested in cannabinoids. And he was giving me chocolates, and I took those. And my tumor marker was only going up one point every three weeks, which was much slower than we had anticipated since we had seen the growth from the previous remission, where it really shot up once it started going. So then um, we went to the Galapagos. This was a year and a half ago now. And I was off all the medication because, of course, it's illegal to travel with it, and especially internationally. And my tumor marker shot up um, eight points in those three weeks. And that's when I knew that this is absolutely driving the, my tumor. And I had to, you know, go whole hog into this and do everything I could. And so... Um, I contacted the local growers and they helped me source oil. And I started every three weeks trying to do a different formula to try to figure out um, how it was working and what was working. I'm, I really, I hate the fact that I have to just take a lot of this and not know how it's working. I really want to understand to give myself the best chance of, of curing this. So I'm just really focused on um, trying to, you know, pull the science apart the best I can. One of the things so, that listeners like, uh, sorry, Corey, one of the things listeners, that listeners like is to have you tell how much cannabis you take and how strong it is. Sure. So during the last year, just over a year ago, when I shrank my tumor, I was on a full spectrum extract of approximately 80 milligrams a day, which I'd gradually worked up to. And yes, that was hard to take. I, um, I never felt bad. But I was definitely zonked out, and I had lots of friends come over to keep me company. I wasn't driving, and so I did that with the help of um, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, who I found through Read the People after I had you know, worked on it on my own. So she upped my dose quite a bit, and she added in more compounds. So I was on CBD, CBDA, CBG, THC, and THCA in a formula that she's worked on. And so in five weeks, my tumor marker fell 50%, which was faster than any chemo that I had had, actually. Wow. Yeah, and my oncologist, um, who I've always told what I'm doing, and she has the one who's written my recommendation, which is, of course, the word instead of a prescription. And she was very supportive, but it did freak her out because doctors are trained that this is, you know, a, a drug of abuse. 
and I bring her papers and she's definitely more open to it now, but it, it, it just scares her because she doesn't understand how it's working. So at that point, after shrinking my tumor on that high dose, I had already had surgery scheduled and I, it happened so quickly. If I'd had a bit more time and if I had had at that point had already met Dr. Bonnie, maybe I would have said no to surgery, but I, I said, let's just do it to make sure that they get as much cancer out as they can. And then I know the cannabis will always be there. So then I had a second surgery where they took out the lymph nodes and my dose now is about 30 milligrams a day. And my blood work last week, my tumor marker did go up a tiny bit. So I'm trying to find the dose that will keep it knocked down, but is the smallest dose possible so that I can continue to live a big full life. Michelle, do you happen to know the percent of any of the stuff that you're taking, like what percent THC and what yeah, percent very, Yeah, very, very high percentage. And I wish, Corey, I could give you more details, but because we're not in my home office right now, um, and we're, we're COVID refugees, I don't have like my, all my giant files. Yeah, sure, but, that's fine. Yeah, so, but definitely very high, high percentage of THC. And, um, you know, being the sciencey person, um, you know, Dr. Mieri's paper uh, from Israel, that really seminal work that came out just a year ago, it showed that the, the strains that are working best definitely have, you know, 50, 60 percent THC. Mm-hmm. So it's really it does seem to be critical. Do you know if you're on a, a mixed strain oil or just a single strain? So at nighttime, I take more indica, of course, and then I do take um, some sativa during the day to try to perk me up in the morning because on the big doses, boy, did I sleep. (laughs) Do you know if that indica, for example, is a a mixture of different strains, like say purple kush, white widow, whatever, or is it one particular strain? Yeah. So the growers have been wonderful to test the oil for me. So I have really, being a sciencey kind of person, I really have just stepped right over the strains because I found that confusing and I try to go straight to the chemistry because of the way they overlap. And so I don't, I really haven't read that much about strains because it just got me too confused. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's so much in my experience, although, you know, I'm not the be all end all in this. I don't think it's so much about strains as getting a combination. Yeah. You definitely want to get a lot of the different, um, the compounds. Yeah. 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 And some of the very um, minor compounds seem like they might be some of the most important from that paper from Dr. Mieri last year, Heterogeneity and Complexity in Anti-Tumor Properties of Cannabis. I think that's the title. Um, you know, CBT, which is a very minor cannabinoid, the, the few strains that seem like they might be working best. And this is, of course, all preclinical, but some of those CBT was quite high. So it's it's just hard to overstate how complicated the chemistry is and different types of cancers that are driven by different types of mutations need different combinations of the chemical. So it's, it's too bad that it's not easier to figure out. I mean, the chemistry is, is incredibly complicated. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting when I first started on this journey eight years ago, it was all about getting high THC and certainly we're becoming increasingly aware that it's not all about THC, that these other cannabinoids, it, they all can do you know different things. And I can't wait for the day when we understand it better. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do some science and figure this out? You've had, yeah, you've had some pretty good doctors, uh, Bonnie Goldstein and uh, was it Dr. Bierman? 
yes, yeah, so Dr. Behrman lives um, very close to me, and that was just um, part of the crazy journey of this yeah. is, you know, struggling, and, and all of a sudden someone tells me, well, why don't you go see Dr. Behrman? And I'm like, well, who's he? And then, you know, my oncologist didn't think to send me to him, and, and that's part of this reason I have to keep telling this story is we have to empower patients to, to try if they want and keep looking for answers and get the oncologists to be more open to it when patients are really out of other choices. Yeah, I think they would both be interesting for us to interview. I've sent uh, uh, an email request to Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, but uh, she didn't get back to me. So the next time you see her, tell her we'd be interested in talking to her. I will, yes. We have a Skype appointment. Um, I email her whenever I have blood work, and every now and then we'll Skype and check in. Um, so I will. And Dr. Beerman as well. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, would you say that without cannabis, you may not be here today? I'd say that I would be coming up close to being dead right about now. Um, so last year on, on the cannabis, if I hadn't been taking it, I know that my tumor would have been growing much, much faster and more aggressively. Um, and I don't think my surgery that I had over a, just over a year ago would have been as successful because all that time before surgery, I shrank my tumor. So I think that I probably would be dying right about now. Yeah, I would. You know, last week we talked to a woman in New Hampshire who told us that uh, taking cannabis for uh, her breast cancer uh, eradicated the breast cancer, but she said, I also have other benefits, and uh, her eyesight got better. Do you have any other benefits that oh. have been attributed to cannabis? That what you're, a great question. That you're aware of? Um, it's definitely sleep. Gosh, uh, such good sleep. Yeah. I think as far as the stress of dealing with a terminal diagnosis, that the cannabis has been really helpful for my mental health, for sure. Um, physically, I mean, I feel really good. I don't have very much pain. I get funny tightness up by my diaphragm when my gut's moving around, but it's usually temporary. Um, other benefits. Well, it's helped tremendously with the neuropathic pain in my feet. Mm-hmm. So doc, my, my oncologist gave me a prescription for a, a pharmaceutical pain pill for the neuropathy, and I tried it uh, for like a week. And then I started using the THC pain cream that the growers um, gave me, and that worked much better. And it's hitting a different pain receptor, and um, so that's been a benefit for sure for my little pinky toes that ache all the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, in your video, you said that you suggested that people not abandon conventional treatment, but try cannabis as a complement to us. Now, tell us why you're supportive of conventional treatment. Well, some cancers don't respond to cannabis. And, um, I mean, I really don't like giving medical advice. Like, I feel like this whole situation is so uncomfortable. We shouldn't have to be lobbying the doctors, right? I wish they would look at the science, but I, you know, given the situation we're in, we have to. So, but I, but some, some cancers don't respond at all. And it is very complicated. And there are a lot of chemical interactions, not so much with chemo, but with some of the immunotherapies. So I just wouldn't want someone who had a cancer that was really easy to cure with a round of chemo to not do that and think that the cannabis was a magic cure-all because it definitely isn't. Um, 
But obviously, people can do whatever they want. You know, I think anyone with a terminal diagnosis should just get to do whatever they want, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Your cannabis enlightenment is much like mine. I didn't really give it much of a thought until I started interviewing Corey when I was in commercial radio. And it was really an eye-opener. And the podcast we've done, year number 276, the podcast we've done, and hearing the remarkable stories that people tell us about the medical benefits of cannabis and what it has done for them has really changed my attitude towards it big time to the point where I take a little bit every day, Um, not because I have an illness, but because Mm -hmm. it just... I don't know, it just makes you feel better, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain th- to people. Yeah, I think Dustin Sulak, Dr. Sulak, who I was fortunate to spend time with and it was in the film, he would he would certainly agree with you. And that was the first place that I heard about what he would call microdosing as a supplement and that people should be taking a small dose, five milligrams every morning and five milligrams every night or something. I don't, I don't know what he would suggest, but, but that it's just a good, healthy supplement to take every day. And I, I believe that for sure. And what was your attitude towards cannabis prior to your illness? Um, you know, Ian, I don't even know if I had an attitude because it was just <laughs> not on my radar. I, um, yeah, had never experienced cannabis uh, in my entire life. I didn't care one way or the other. I mean, I knew friends that I respected, accomplished people in our lives that would smoke if we went to a party and we were playing charades out by their fire pit and people would be passing a joint around. It didn't bother me at all, but I, I just didn't really care. You know, I had, I had no knowledge. I was kind of a blank slate. Yeah, when you start to research cannabis and the medical benefits of it and what it does for the human body and the endocannabinoid system, I read something the other day that the endocannabinoid system is only taught in 13% of medical schools in the United States. So sometimes you ask a doctor about the endocannabinoid system and he or she won't know what you're talking about unless they're younger. Yes, my dad being one of them, and he was really appalled and embarrassed. I mean, of course, he's in his late 70s and graduated medical school long before the endocannabinoid system was discovered. But something that is the master regulator of our other systems, it's criminal. It needs to be in every medical school curriculum. And um, that's one thing people can do is Next time you go to the doctor, ask your doctor, what do you know about the endocannabinoid system? And, and print up a paper, take it to them. Um, you know, uh, the fact that, that this master therm- thermostat that regulates all these other systems is, isn't taught. I mean, I just don't understand. Whether the stigma um, is, is so great. It's really, really tragic. It's changing fast, though. I know it's changing fast. It is. Dr. Bierman pointed out uh, correctly that prior to 1937, one-third of all uh, prescriptions written by doctors in the United States contained cannabis. Yes. Yes, exactly. And um, hopefully we'll get back there back there soon. I, I don't have a lot of hope for the United States, but Canada's doing <laughs> great things in Australia and Israel, of course, so I might have to move. I really... Like last year when I shrank my tumor, I was, it's hard to explain. I'm going to cry. You know, if you, you know, you have a year left and you've been preparing to die. And then all of a sudden a new treatment comes and you have some real hope. And um, I was so elated and happy and thought this is more time. And I, 
it didn't really, it took a long time to sink in. And now I'm angry. Like, I want my life. I don't want to be a felon. I want to be able to travel. I want my doctors to know what medication is doing to me. I want the full force of science to cure me. And the government is saying, you can't do that science. And um, I mean, I can't think of anything more unjust. No, you're absolutely correct. Tell me, Michelle, how has your husband responded to your illness? Oh, God, I am so lucky. Um, It's been hard on him. I'm definitely less capable of some things if I'm really on the higher doses. Um, like, for example, during, you know, I didn't do our taxes this year. <laughs> so I do feel like I've had some memory issues and um, I'm a little bit fuzzy sometimes, but he's so supportive. And he just said, if you have to be high every day for the rest of your life, we'll do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, he's there to help me. So. I feel very lucky and I, I feel grateful that he understands the science. We read all the papers together and he knows that I'm not crazy, that we're all not crazy. So that's really nice. Um, I really want to try to jumpstart science in some way. And he's helping me brainstorm foundations and trying to reach out to researchers around the world to say this works. And, um, there's real potential here. When I hear the researchers saying it maybe you know, 10 or 20 years before their treatments, it makes me sad to think that they don't have a bolder vision that this can work right now. And um, so he's, help- yeah, he's helping me contact people. And um, I just, I really want to use my story in the most efficient way possible to bring change. Do you know what? You're going to make it through this. And in five years, we'll talk to you again. And uh, you'll look back in those five five years, and uh, you'll be amazed, I believe, at the change in attitude of society towards cannabis. I uh, hope so, Ian. I hope so. I'll take you up on that. I want to go back okay. to Burchart Gardens. We'll come and visit. Oh, you've, <laughs> be, right. you've been here, have you? Oh, a long, long time ago when I was a, a teen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not that long ago. <laughs> Michelle, what advice, in closing, what advice would you give to people about the use of cannabis for medical purposes? Yeah, I would say tell your doctor because there are interactions. And if they're not supportive, find a new doctor if you need to. And I would say the science is so uncertain in so many ways that if you have a serious illness like cancer, try to set up a protocol where you can change your dosing and change your strains and change the different compounds within blood work. If you get blood work, it makes it a lot easier. If you're trying to do this and you only have a scan every six months, I think it's it's scarier because you don't know if it's working. But I definitely would say if you're out of options, try it. I was, you know, the, the first time... I went to the dispensary and I got a tiny little mint that was two and a half milligrams. And I was so scared to take it. And it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I waited for Bruce to come home from work and, I, and then I felt nothing. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing. I thought, this is ridiculous. Why was I so scared of this? So I would just tell people to to not be scared and to go slow and um, to try to do it in the scientific way so that you can make the best choices. I mean, if you really have a serious illness like I do and you have to try to make every decision right, um, just, you know, just try to do it systematically, but definitely try. There's so much hope in this plant. Michelle, you were wonderful. 
We appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. I would, I'd like to ask you guys a question or two. Sure, fire away. I think that it would be so helpful to try to collect the case studies with the kinds of details with the cell type, um, the broken pathways, like of everyone who's had really great responses. Um, do you know of anyone who's collecting that information? Because I'm worried it will be so long before we can do any real science, but we can sort of back end it. If we get a, a hundred people who all have said, you know, I had a great response on cannabis and we can look at their cell type and their broken pathways, you know, someone who really understands that might be able to figure it out that way. Corey, would Ethan Russo in Washington state have that? I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I know, of course, Ethan's doing lots of great science, but just all these case studies, I'm really motivated to try to collect that and and see if someone can can figure it out because I, I that's why whenever I do my my social media posts I always put my cell type and my my, my mutations because you know some woman in Iowa that's got this exact same cell line and same same mutation sees that you know maybe she'll think wow this really might work for me yeah it's interesting yeah. well we have uh, we have listeners all around the world over a hundred uh, countries have listened to cannabis health radio. And uh, we'll maybe we can find someone who who has that. What other questions do you have for us? Well, I, I'm in this place right now where it seems like I really need to stay on the cannabis. So I'm wondering, you know, how many patients have you spoken to with cancer that have really maintained their remission, and do they all have to stay on the cannabis, and how long? And have you what kinds of patterns have you seen from people who've managed to shrink their tumors? Corey, that's for you. Well, what I've seen is that that almost inevitably with people who, uh, in quotations, cure themselves uh, and stop taking oil, it comes back. Yeah. Um, the people that remain on a maintenance dose tend to do really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um I'm eight years out, well, eight years, just about eight years cancer-free. Um, I remain on a maintenance dose, and I haven't had any issues at all. Okay. So it's very, very important to continue with using cannabinoids after you've cleared yourself. Just you, Certainly you don't have yeah. to do it. You know, my, my experience is you don't need to do it in the, you know, concentration that you were. Um, you know, so at a much reduced rate, but yes, definitely. And on a daily basis, like I just take a little bit every night. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I I feel part of the reason that people get sick in the first place is that whole lack of cannabinoids in their bodies out of balance. So you create that homeostasis when you start taking cannabinoids and then all of a sudden you quit it again. Well, you're just going to go back to where you were. Yeah. The research coming out of Oxford is, um, For ovarian cancer specifically, um, he said endocannabinoid dysfunction seems to lead to malignancies um, in the, yeah, gynecological malignancies. I totally, I believe it leads to malignancies, period. But yeah, I Yeah, but but it seems to be especially powerful with ovarian, uh, maybe the tissue types, but but yeah. Well, it's just really scary to, for me to think going forward that I need these molecules every day and we don't understand how they work. So I appreciate that you're eight years out and you take some every day and you're still here. Cause, um, 
that's just, it's hard for me to have that faith that it's going to work. And um, it just makes it scary going forward. I really swing from being very confident and feeling, well, cocky even, like, wow, look what I figured out, even though it's all of the researchers and labs around the world, but to being very scared that we don't know how this works and someday it may just stop working. So it would be really great to have some kind of, um, you know, remission support group. I feel like all these patients are out there and we, we just need to collect that data and help people because it's going to be so long, I think, unfortunately, since there's, you know, until there's real science. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Perfect. Excellent. Michelle, you're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Corey. We really appreciate you telling your story and getting your message out. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. And I, you know, you guys saved my life. I appreciate your dedication to this. And um, all those people who've put stories up on the Internet, you know, when you see enough of them. um, So I'm so grateful for you. And thanks, thanks for everything that you've done to help everyone know the power of this plant. Well, thank you, Michelle. We didn't save your life. You saved your life. Well. Because you took action. I'm all about action now. Yep. All right, action girl. Thank you. Thanks, Corey, so much. It was really great to talk with you. Well, thank you, Michelle. And we'd like to thank our listeners for supporting us and sharing our podcast with others who would benefit from hearing these testimonials about the healing power of cannabis. And if you'd like to support Cannabis Health Radio so we can continue doing this, a few ways you can do it. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month on our Patreon page. And you can also make a one-time donation through our website, Cannabis Health Radio. And we'll be back with another testimonial next week. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.